0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because I have with me Dr. Faye Dussart to tell us all about her book published by Bloomsbury titled In the Service of Empire, Domestic Service and Mastery in Metropole and Colony, which is a really interesting book because it takes us into a world that we might see, especially in films and TV shows, but don't necessarily see in the archive, don't necessarily investigate in terms of history. And this is the relationship between servants and masters in the context of the British Empire, both in Britain and in India what is actually happening here, what does this have to do with imperialism, what does this have to do with concepts of what is the home and different gender roles and all sorts of other things. So this book has a lot to offer and Faye, thank you so much for being here to tell us about it.
0: Well, thank you very much, Miranda. It's a a pleasure to be here. So thank you for having me.
1: I'm so glad. Um, Could you please start us off with a bit of an introduction of kind of how you came to write this book?
0: Yes, yeah, so um, I I came to originally do the research for this book as a PhD student um, many years ago. And I ended up working on domestic service because um, I, I was interested in social history. And as a master's student, I came under the tutelage of Professor Catherine Hall at UCL, who uh, really showed me that the, the kind of dynamics of gender in our world, in our everyday lives. And this was something I was really, really interested in and really wanted to work on. And as I worked with her doing my masters, it became quite clear that domestic service was a big category of labour uh, that was really important in the the making of people's social lives in the nineteenth century, which was the, the the kind of time period that I was interested in. That was under researched, so I saw a kind of opportunity for research. And the more work I did, the more um, the more possibility there seemed to to look at this work and and to have a a look at the relationship between employers and their servants in the context of the British Empire. You know, there was some work that looked at domestic service in Britain. Lee Davidoff was one important scholar and uh, Pamela Horne had written on it and various others. But there was very little work that thought about domestic service in relation to imperialism. Um, and that looked at domestic service in comparative ways across imperial space. So I was quite keen to do that to to try and think about the, this master servant relationship in a context that included both Britain and a colonial site. In this case, India. Um, so that was how I came to do it. I started doing it as a PhD student, and then. After I'd finished my PhD, I actually got a research position doing something quite different, working with um, Professor Alan Lester, who's a historical geographer. And I ended up working on humanitarianism and, col- and colonization for several years. And after I'd finished that research I came back to the domestic service research and though the field had moved on in the interim it seemed that there was still space for a book on uh, domestic service across metropolitan colony so that's how I came to write the book.
1: Wonderful thank you for giving us that um, background it's always I think really interesting to kind of hear how people come to a particular topic Um, and this gives us kind of I think a lot to build on as we go forward I want to, I think, start us off thinking about uh, the home, especially as sort of a concept. If we're talking about domestic service, it's kind of obvious that we're talking about the home, but I think it's worth interrogating, hang on, what does that actually mean? Um, Because it does change, not just over the time period of the book, but our idea now versus any idea in the 19th century is probably not quite the same. So can you take us through when and why the idea of home was sort of changing during the time period you look at and especially taking on kind of spiritual significance, ideas about who is in what kind of space. What's going on here?
0: Yes, so um the home I mean the home had uh I, I focus on the 19th century and there's a lot of quite a bit of debate about when the domestic sphere took on the kind of uh, meanings that we see it taking on in the Victorian period in the 19th century. Um, there's a lot of discussion about uh, separate spheres and whether whether separate spheres is an appropriate way to think about um, gendered relations and appropriate conceptual frame. I think that the home probably was starting to take on a kind of spiritual significance from the 18th century onwards. But this really, as far as my research goes, this really seemed to gain an awful lot of power in the early 19th century and throughout the 19th century. I think this is associated partly to do with the evangelical revival um, of the late 18th and into the 19th century, and also to the expansion of industrial society um, and the the emergence um, and expansion of a kind of middle-class identity um, it isn't just about middle-classness of course you know the, the the domestic ideal the ideal of a home as a place of the site of the family a place of nurture um, kind of sanctuary from the outside world was something that had a power as i say in the book that had a power that stretched beyond the boundaries of the middle class um it became a way of thinking about what was distinctive and different about uh the place where the family laid the place place where the family stayed sorry and and the place where where productive work happened Um, but I think it's really you know from across the 19th century as far as what I've looked at goes we I start to see this this big shift in how the domestic is being imagined how it's being represented in novels how it's being represented in art um the way that um Uh, religious figures are talking about it the way that it's just being thought about in a wide range of cultural outputs um, across the 19th century it's taking on this significance and becoming something uh, a space and place that's imagined in ways that are, are, I think quite different from um, previous uh, centuries Um, and it these ideas tend to kind of revolve around the idea of the family uh, being sort of secluded in a home um, where paid-for work ideally doesn't happen, um, that it's a place of rest, um, ideally a place of nurture, um, and, and, less, uh, you know, and, and a place to a large extent of, of, uh, that's free from the cash nexus.
1: bunch of different things happening there um yes very different kind of from the previous way of conceptualizing it
0: mm, mm, yes I think so I mean I think that it's I mean you know it it, it it's a, it, there's a kind of ideology that's emerging I think which sort of sanctifies the home and like I was saying we could see it sort of articulated in a range of cultural products but that doesn't mean that that is exactly how people are living their lives you know I think there's there's a a, the home can have this importance it can have this sort of poetic resonance in a way um, in terms of domesticity and how we think about what what a domestic space is what it means what it should look like what people should do in it Um, but people's ability to conform to that or live according to that ideology is is going to be limited. You know, I mean, you can only have a a home in which um, the majority of its inhabitants don't work for wages. When you have a certain level of affluence, you can only decorate your home with, you know, uh, chintz and and lovely fabrics, and have it orna, um, ornaments around the place, and grand mirrors reflecting uh, the family back to themselves. When when you you have a certain level of comfort, and and uh, you know the vast majority of homes, I imagine up and down the country through the nineteenth century, were not able to live according to that ideal. But it doesn't mean the ideal didn't have that power. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that that the the ideal of a, a comfortable place uh, where a family could live that was ideally, um, uh, you know, ideally occupied by a, a non-working wife who would delegate domestic labor to domestic servants, children um, who might be cared for also by other domestic servants, and a husband who would go out to work and earn the capital in order to sustain this family. This was this was a powerful cultural imaginary i think um that even when people couldn't live according to it might also shape the way that they did organize their lives um you know in an approximation of that ideal Mm. so yeah so um so i think uh, this home you know, and and this kind of gendered idea of of the home as a place of of nurture and security, the feminized space, uh, was really important for shaping the way that the relationship between domestic workers and um, and their employers, the master and mistress of the household, um, were relating to each other throughout the period.
1: Mm. No, absolutely. As as we know, even if not everyone can achieve the ideal, the fact that it is an ideal is still incredibly powerful. Um, perceptions matter, right? Absolutely, and I think especially,
0: especially in a society that is a kind of uh, a, a sort of developing a kind of model of capitalism that revolves around uh, consumption um that you know the the ideal is really really important in encouraging people to consume to a large degree so you know these households this uh, ideal household is a is a unit of consumption rather than production it's a place where uh, largely reproductive labor happens so things ideally are not being made in these houses things are being consumed in these houses to put it very simply Mm -hmm. um and, and and this is, you know, this is really important for driving um, for driving capitalism on, uh, you know, when you imagine that reproduce at scale across many, 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 many households, then um, you've got something, you know, an important source of consumption, Um uh, consuming, uh, furnishings, consuming foodstuffs and all of that stuff has to be prepared. All of that stuff has to be maintained, kept clean. Um, there's a kind of whole set of, of performances that have to happen around sustaining those ideals. And, and even when the ideal cannot be lived to exactly, um, I still think that, that the, the power of, of that performance, the power of that, um, that idea of how those relations should be is is really important
1: Mm, absolutely um and in fact that is very much sort of what i want to ask you next about um in the same vein of perception and debate and how things work in practice you discuss in the book the quote servant problem oh yes what was this and how and why did it shift over the course of the 19th century
0: So, the servant problem um, is something that is discussed. Almost constantly um, from the in, in the period i'm looking at, and I, I'm sure it was being discussed in the earlier period, which i I haven't done so much research on but um, certainly in the nineteenth century, one of the things that is um, most common in conversations around servants is talking about them as a problem, and at least i'm when I say conversations around servants, I mean uh, servant employers largely talking about servants in this case. Um, So servant employers in the mid-19th century were tending to talk about the problem of servants as being a problem of how to manage servants, uh, how to manage behaviour. And actually, that problem was kind of subdivided into multiple sub-problems. A very common anxiety was around what was called the love of dress, which was servants wanting to dress in fancy clothes that perhaps their mistresses thought were inappropriate for girls of, of their station, and um, there was a great anxiety around servants who wanted to wear crinolines and ribbons on their clothes and clothing that would be um, you know that 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 they might find feel. Uh, beautiful in, I suppose but the uh, mistresses were very anxious about that they were anxious about followers by which um, I mean um, men that might be courting domestic servants in the households um, they were anxious about honesty and so a lot of the discourse around the servant problem around the mid-19th century is to do with um, how do how you can appropriately manage servants behavior and I think this might be a symptom of the a big expansion in servant keeping. So, you know, as, as we get an increase in the number of separate families living together that uh we also get a concomitant increase in the number of servants who are being employed. And that means that there are lots of people who are imagining who are employing domestic servants in in households, possibly in ways that they haven't done before. So there's a market for advice. There's a market for um the kind of domestic advice literature that tells people how you run a household, how you manage the servants. And out of that comes this kind of idea of a problem with servants' behaviour and the need to control servants. I think also that uh, anxiety about control is also connected to um, a a wider anxiety about Lower class people on the part of middle and upper class people. Um, I think we can think of this in relation to the the sort of beginnings of labour organisation, and there being an anxiety about what servants are going to be, who servants are connecting to beyond the household. What information are they taking out of the private sphere into the world? You know, when they speak to family and friends, um, what. You know, that, that there's, a, there's a sort of an increasing worry, I think, that um, servants are not of the family and might in some way betray. I'm using the word betray. This isn't the word that I saw, but I think it's kind of um, the best one to describe this anxiety on the part of employers that servants are going to somehow betray their employers or they can't be trusted. And so they need to be controlled. So this is the kind of texture of this problem. I think until the later nineteenth century. In the later nineteenth century, the anxiety shifts and starts to be more about keeping servants, finding servants. Um, this there's a there's a uh, increasing articulation of a scarcity of servants. In fact. Um, there isn't a precipitous decline in the number of servants. There is a kind of tapering off uh, from the 1890s onwards, according to my analysis of census returns. But um, there, there isn't a kind of rapid decline. However, there isn't there is a, a, a real anxiety on the part of servant employers that they just can't get domestic. Servants to come and work in their households. This is this is a real problem, and there have to be solutions. Thinking through um, how to find decent servants and how to keep them. Um, I think this is connected in some ways to shifts in um, in well, what we might broadly call women ideas about uh, womanhood and youth. So in the 1870, I think 1870, 1871, there's an education act that expands the provision of education. Um, This, uh, I think, There are various commentators who worry that this is going to mean that domestic uh, young girls are not going to be fit for domestic servants. They're going to want to go into other kinds of work. you know, there's, there's you know, the beginnings of alternative occupations opening up uh, for young women and perhaps the decline of service or, or perception of the decline of service as a life cycle occupation. So um, whether it actually is or not, certainly amongst employers um Many employers do seem to be articulating an anxiety that uh, they're not going to be able to get servants. And then what are they going to do? Who's going to look after their children? Who's going to wash the dishes and, and, and uh, keep the house clean and as often assist the, um, the mistress of the house with uh, managing all the domestic labor of the household? Um, It's important to note that many mistresses didn't just kind of hire servants and then lie back on their on their sofas eating chocolates. They were also working, doing domestic work alongside domestic workers, too. Um, Anyway, so that that I think is the kind of broad shift in the problem. You know, it goes from being a perception of of a problem around managing servants, controlling them to a perception of 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 finding servants. Hmm. Towards the end of the 19th century
1: as you said a perennial topic of conversation which is interesting in and of itself and to trace the changes um so if we stay on that topic of kind of like hang on what does this actually mean right the mistress of the house is not lying on a sofa eating chocolate well probably some of the time but not all the time (laughs) so getting into that kind of more practical side In what ways, to what extent was the organization of domestic service in, if we're looking at the 19th century, but we're looking at India and England, to what extent are they organized in the same way? Where are the differences? Why are there those differences?
0: (laughs) Oh, gosh, that's a big question. Um...
1: <laughs> this, was, this is perhaps a moment to say to the listeners that, of course, we're doing the highlights version of the book <laughs> for all the details. The book itself has them. But if I could ask you to answer, like, in broad yes. strokes. I will do my best.
0: Um, so that's a really huge question. I will do my best to answer it. Um, yeah, the the, the the book does kind of, I mean, that's what the book is trying to, well, trying to do up to a point, but I can talk a bit more about that in a in a minute um this i think broadly i mean you're talking about two completely different contexts for a start um you know india uh is a place where uh white britons have migrated but in, in in tiny numbers really relative by comparison to other uh colonies of white settlement um And it's a place that that uh, white Britons are uh, migrating to and setting up homes. Um, Many more women going there after 1857, after the the uprising of 1857, when India came under crown, direct crown control from the East India Company. Um, So... You're seeing sort of a different setup from the start in terms of um, the kinds of households that are are being set up. Um, we've got colonial households in India um, where... Uh, people are living as a, a white minority in the position of colonizers, um, and the domestic workers that they are employing in their households are are Indian people. Um, on the whole, in the later in in the period I'm looking at, uh, the Many more of those uh, Indian domestic workers are male, whereas in England and um, in Britain at that time, the profession had become largely feminized. Um, There were still male servants, but um, it had become by the kind of second half of the 19th century, primarily a female occupation. Um, whereas in India there were there were many more male servants um, English people or British people sorry I should be careful not to slip between English and British um, even though uh, the, uh, not my 19th century kind of English people did tend to slip between British and English maybe not so much the Welsh and Scots making the same slippage but um, colonizers in India at this time, tended to employ many more domestic servants than they would have done in England. Um, they tended to have a bigger complement of servants in their households. They complained that this was they had to do this. It was necessary to do this because of the nature of the climate, uh, because of just how things were done. Um, there was an argument or an idea that in in employing uh, domestic servants in Indian households, they were kind of copying what they saw as kind of Oriental quote unquote Oriental practice. Um, I, so, you know, those were a couple of major differences. Um, you know, the, the the context is completely different. The climate is different. The kind of household are different. So, so we see a very different, very different kinds of work being done by domestic workers in the colonial and in the metropolitan context. Having said that, there are similarities as well. Um, you know, when people travelled, when uh, white Britons travelled to India to set up homes there, they didn't suddenly leave behind their ideas of what it meant to run a household and what it was to be a master. And in the Indian context, they kind of developed with their domestic Servants there, a different, a specifically colonial kind of domesticity that carried traces um, and carried practices and certain ideas about difference from the metropolitan context that were then transformed through engagement with the Indian context. Um, so we get a kind of a new sort of domesticity emerging that is specifically colonial in the colonial sites in these in these colonial households. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. I feel yeah. like I've gone no, on. I think it
1: really does. <laughs> um, and in fact, uh, I, I mean, I do obviously want to ask more about this. And so I will. Um, but I do think that answered kind of that question. And brings us to this idea of, right, the the colonial project nature of this, Um, because you talk about in the book that obviously the colonial project, the Anglicization project specifically, uh, has a lot of elements to it, and you're looking at it in the domestic sphere. And interestingly, you say in the book that it's in this domestic sphere that you see the limits of this project sort of come up the most clearly.
0: Yeah, I think so.
1: I think it's because
0: of intimacy. So um, I should say, you know, um, that I'm looking in the book at specifically at white British colonial households, you know, there is a huge landscape of servant employing beyond those households in India, which other scholars, um, Swapna Banerjee is one, um, who's done a really, really important work on this. And there are many young scholars up and coming who uh, are doing really interesting work on on domestic service in Indian households in in the context of British imperialism. And I'm looking specifically at these white coloniser households. And I think that Um, partly the thing that, the the, the reason that Anglicisation or the limits of that project are shown is partly because of the desire of Britons to, um, I guess the desire to to have a sort of, a, a domestic world that they feel power over. And when they are in these, households with these domestic servants that they're so physically close to and often emotionally really close to and dependent upon, then that rubs up in difficult ways against this idea of of them engaging in this colonial project that is to transform this place. Um, You know, they're finding You know, I have people like uh, Minnie Wood who who really struggles with her dependence on her domestic servants. You know, she finds it really, really difficult. She needs them and they provide her with comfort, often emotional comfort. Um, But at the same time, she's really frustrated by her inability to communicate the fact that they will do things in ways that um, she cannot comprehend. Um, You know, she her her racism actually is something that she she really struggles with that tension between difference and um, intimacy. And it's It's really, really problematic. And I think that, you know, in a lot of ways for employers, or at least the way some in some of the personal um, documents that I've looked at, I get the sense that this idea, this sort of vision of an imperial project, which is about you know, civilizing the world that has these kind of you know ideals driving it, that are broadly moral, um, but really flawed, as we know, um, really, really problematic. Um, that that in the domestics in in the domestic world where you know. Bodies are close to each other, and there is a necessary dependence um, of people on other people. In this case, of of, of white European or white British employers on their um, on their domestic servants who have, who they feel are so so different, um, and but and supposedly, according to the, the kind of language of race that's burgeoning at the time, inferior. Um, but they have this dependence upon these domestic workers. They have these dependence on these servants. And it isn't just a dependence that's practical. It's emotional and intimate. And so this, this really disrupts, I think, the logic of Anglicisation, for a lot of these colonial employers. Um, It really makes it... It, it it really kind of challenges and pushes against the idea that these you know that the that the sort of omnipotence of um of of british kind of colonial identity um is is really kind of challenged by the intimacy and dependence that is within the uh, the the relationship between servant employers and servants in colonial households
1: mm. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And um, thank you for taking us through that. I I want to try and tie some of these things together that we've mentioned. Um, use the word sort of betrayal or fear of betrayal earlier. And obviously, you've just talked about intimacy. And that's really quite literally hard to run away from when we're talking about domestic service. And I think that part of the answer to my next question is sort of the two of those things together, um, because one thing you talk about in the book that I was fascinated by is there's not just this debate over the servant problem. That's part of what's being discussed, printed about, etc. cetera. There's also a lot of debate about rules. What should servants uniforms be? How should they behave? How should et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In, I mean, you talk about it in newspapers in books. I mean, it's really quite something. And you note that in the book, there seem to be kind of more of these rules Later on in the century, compared to earlier, so I guess I'm asking you sort of two things: why were there so many rules, and why were there so many rules, especially as time went on? Mm,
0: good question. Um, I think that hmm, I think that there were a lot of rules because, well, I mean, going back to what I was saying about control, I think that. I, I think as time goes on, my sense is that the relationship becomes more formalized. It becomes understood more and more as as work. Um, I think it's quite important to note that domestic workers, domestic servants, uh, were not defined as uh, employees in the same way as other kinds of employees in the 19th century in Britain. They were exempt from truck acts, which meant um, if they were to be paid a wage, it had to be established in the contract. They weren't automatically entitled to be waged. The employer um, was responsible for providing them with food and lodging. legally, but they, they, they weren't, unless it was kind of specifically agreed, they didn't have to be paid in the coin of the realm. So they were dependents within the household. Now, I think this is connected to domestic services being an occupation that was often done by kin. And I think that as the century progresses, we see a shift to it being less a kind of uh, occupation that might be done by by kinfolk um, or you know for example if you think you know there might be someone in the wider in, in a community who has a child um, and then that child needs to work and so they go and work in the household sort of five households down um, so less community-based and maybe a bit more of a and like a, a kind of job more recognizable to us today if you see what I mean, the kind of work that we might think of domestic servants being today. And so that means and, and we do have commentators talking about, you know, taking strangers into your house. And I think rules are one way of coping. With that difference, one way of managing that difference, you know, sort of saying, okay, you know, I think partly, you know, I think it is about class. I think that's important. Um, I think that it's important about status, uh, important as a marker of status. But my research suggests that, you know, has shown actually that we see these deference rituals, or what we might think about deference rituals as happening in in lower class households too I think I give an example somewhere of um, one household where uh, the, there's one room basically and the servant and the family eat at different times but the servant also has to walk around the room in a different direction to fat to the family to kind of mark the difference between the servant and the family so I think that there's a that the rules are in part about marking the servant's difference, somehow kind of protecting perhaps against the intimacy of the relationship and the, 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 the leakages that that might produce. Um, so I think that I I think that's where, you know, that's, that's what the rules really are about. I think they're about, they're, they're defensive in my view. Um, other people may disagree with me. I'd, I'd love to chat about this with um, some of my colleagues. Um, but I think that it, as the century progresses, we see this shift. We see this introduction of uniforms. Um, and I think partly, to a large extent, it's about, about sort of defining the servant as an employee of a household, as distinct from the family, as someone who is is different, um, and and that stands for a lot. A few different kinds of different. It can stand for class difference. It can also stand for a difference that's that's about intimacy and privacy and and the the, the secluded nature of of the family unit as well.
1: Mm. As I said, ties a lot of things together that you've been mentioning. Um, so really interesting to think about. Um, I want to ask about something else you talk about in the book, because I think it's very easy to accidentally sort of think about everything from the point of view of the masters and mistresses, right? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, they do, yeah. you know, their voices quite literally are louder, are the ones that are recorded, et cetera. Absolutely, yes. And they're often the ones that, you know, have the prestige films, right? Like they're literally the ones that get to tell the stories quite often. Um, yeah. But you talk about in the book that it's not just them that we hear from also hear from the servants and not just in like archives that we only hear now we did actually hear them at the time especially through newspapers yes so yes what are they doing why are they talking to newspapers how does that work
0: <laughs> I, so I think servants were an awful lot noisier than we give them credit for um, certainly employers are constantly complaining about how noisy they are um, I think that One of the problems isn't just that, you know, that the the employer voices are being recorded. It's also to do with the archive as well. So when I originally started this research, it was extremely hard to find the voices of domestic workers in the archive. And partly that wasn't just a problem of them not being recorded. It was also a problem of archival practice, too. And the fact that, um, you know, they they hadn't been seen, I think largely because they were women doing work in a private space, um, domestic work specifically, they hadn't been seen as significant enough for archivists to actually give priority to in terms of, assigning keywords and and that kind of thing so we could get into a big discussion about the discriminatory archive but um i just i just think that um you know i I think now we might find more and more and more sources where we can actually hear servants speak um and 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 hear and, and see their writings but yes so i look at them in they're writing into newspapers. And I was really astonished when I did the research to, to find so many servants writing to newspapers. Um, I focused on the Times newspaper because I felt like this was a newspaper. It wasn't the sort of uh, most widely read newspaper at the time, but I thought it was a newspaper that would be largely read by a kind of conservative small C audience, um, you know, the kind of middle and upper class audience that I was interested to see servants speaking to. And I was really astonished to see um, when very often after there had been some kind of editorial or some kind of article that in some way maligned servants or or um, where there had been any kind of controversial thing happening. Uh, to a servant or by a servant, how many servants would then write to the newspaper to comment or to uh, contradict things that were being written about them? And obviously, it's really, really hard to verify those letters. You know, I can't say with absolute certainty, yes, these letters were being written by servants. Um, It's possible they weren't. However, um, I, I suspect that they were. You know, I think that um, many of the servants seemed to be writing from uh, a perspective of, of knowledge about the kind of work that they were doing. Um, they were often quite indignant um, and they were determined to put their opinions across in a place where their employers would see them, which is in the pages of the newspaper. And they could do this anonymously, of course, you know, where they might not be able to very clearly you know, articulate their views to their employers at work, because um, obviously they might be at risk of losing their places, Um, then the newspaper was a place where they had an opportunity to speak and be heard and be seen. Um, So, you know, I I think it was a really important space for um, domestic servants to be able to articulate their their opinions and views, and and slightly different from the courtroom, which is the other space that I use, um, because in the newspapers they're not in the position of prosecuting or defending anything. You know, I mean, they, in a way they are, but but the the stakes are different in terms of writing to the newspaper. Um, so, yeah, the newspapers were were an important resource for me in trying to trying to get at the servant voice.
1: No, I can imagine. Um, You mentioned courts a moment ago and I would like to ask you about that because you do also talk about in the book instances where servants end up in court um, but not just where servants are being the one accused, right? That might be what we think of initially but actually where employers are the ones being accused by their servants in the colonial context.
0: Yes, yes. What can we learn from these? Well, I, I mean, I think one thing is that we can... I think one thing is you can get interesting information from those court cases about the dynamics of the households um, because otherwise we're tending to... Glean those details from employer letters or diaries or advice manuals, um, which is which is only giving the employer perspective. But then in the in the court case, we can hear servants actually, or, or see servants representing themselves, and um, putting an alternative perspective on uh, on on what is going on in their lives in their in their working lives, working in these colonial households. I think the willingness to use the courts is quite interesting. Um, I'm, you know, I, I I think that it's it's interesting that they should. Uh, have the kind of knowledge and the preparedness to be able to take employers to court especially in circumstances where those courts would generally be quite biased against those servants um and yet you know we have we see instances of of servants prosecuting employers sometimes for you know quite serious things but sometimes for non-payment of wages or i mean which obviously are serious but but you know it, it, you you might not think of as you know not so kind of big as say violence um but uh so we see domestic servants actually taking their employers to court and asking the court in a way to judge what are the kind of limits? What are the parameters of an employer's authority? You know what what is an employer ultimately allowed to do in that relationship? What is the servant allowed to do in that relationship? So you know, it's an. I think it's quite an important site for negotiation and 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 agency. You know, we can see. I think uh, domestic workers in India taking, um, uh, claiming agency by, by taking their employers to court there. And that kind of goes against a sort of assumption of, of you know, domestic servants as always sort of oppressed and always um, brutalized and just complicates the idea a bit. Um, that's not to say that they weren't broadly oppressed, um you know that they 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 didn't have as much power as their employers that's um you know I I wouldn't go so far as to say that there was any kind of equality in their relationships um but but I think that to I think it's you you know I think we have to um attend to where servants are claiming agency. And I think, you know, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes the courtroom is a place where that happens. They might be frustrated, they might not win their cases. Um, in fact, the consequences of that might be dire, but, they, but they, they're going anyway. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like it's really important for us to pay attention to, to those sorts of moments as historians.
1: Absolutely. Um, And in a similar vein, right, court cases are important in a lot of ways, no matter what the verdict is, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And similarly, you look at something in the book um, that, that fails. And yet, the fact that it fails is part of what's interesting about it, but not all of it. So... What can we learn when we look historically at something that failed, in this case, attempts at forming unions for domestic workers? Well, I think one thing we can learn is
0: that domestic workers were trying to form unions from really quite early on. Um, I think the, the initial... If I remember rightly, an initial attempt was actually made in as early as 1825, although I don't discuss that in the book. Um, But, you know, I'm really looking at the 1870s and some abortive attempts by domestic workers in Leamington and in Dundee to start unions. Now, domestic workers were more successful in the later 19th and early 20th century, and, and other scholars have explored that More um, in, there was a a, a young woman called Jessie Stephen who was really important in the domestic workers union in the later period. However, I looked at the 1870s and some particular moments when domestic workers tried to organise. And, you know, this was a time, you know, we think about the broader context, this was a time where labour organisation more broadly was really starting to get going. Um, and it's interesting to me that these, uh, largely women, um, there were some attempts by, uh, manservants to also unionize around the same time. But, um, you know, I was, I was interested in these maid servants in Dundee and the, the, uh, the, the domestic servants in, in Leamington. Um, and they, you know, I think that again, it kind of, um, I think again, it is a counterpoint to this idea of domestic servants as sort of always. Yeah, there seem to be kind of two discourses or two kind of popular ideas around domestic servants. One is that they were all kind of working in these huge households, like in Downton Abbey. Um, the other is that they were completely, completely beaten and oppressed and um, and and drooping. Um, Figures. But uh, here, what we see is domestic workers getting together, organizing, having meetings, um, you know, laughing. talking about the conditions of their work, sort of arguing that they weren't prepared to work under conditions that they found unacceptable and using the language of, of labor organization to, to articulate, uh, their resistance. And, and, and whilst the movements failed, ultimately the uh the 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 press certainly sat up and took notice um you know the the these organizations were written about in national newspapers they were um you know there was there there, there was a there was discussion of of what this labor organization on the part of domestic workers could mean um, so you know, I think that uh, what we're seeing is an example of, of working women uh, recognizing their work as work and recognizing that they might have the possibility of arguing for certain if not exactly rights, then better conditions of work that they they might be able to organize. Um, It was very difficult for them to organize. Um, Unlike people who worked in factories, domestic workers are a bit more isolated in their time. Um, They didn't have very much free time, so it was harder for them to to meet. Um, Nonetheless, they tried. And I think we've got to kind of give that spirit some credit you know and 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 think about you know how that what that means for how we think about women's work and women's labor organization more broadly um, in the 19th century because you know the 1870s quite early for women to be organizing in this way.
1: Mm -hmm. And as you said even if it didn't work it tells us a lot about what they were thinking and what they thought was important.
0: Yeah 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 i mean again i think it's an example of of people who we might assume uh not to have any agency actually you know sort of articulating agency um and and making a claim to it um in, in quite a public sort of way i mean in in terms of the way that this was being reported in the press um more broadly than just in local newspapers
1: mm. no exactly being taken seriously even if it didn't end up working absolutely yes yeah um so there's obviously i mean i could ask you a whole bunch of things <laughs> i'm going into detail about things but i did promise this would be sort of a highlights tour um which brings us i think to the end of that uh main portion of the interview leaving me with only my final question um you talked about at the beginning that you came to this book sort of you had the idea did a bunch of work and then went and did other things and now i've come back to it so i'm especially curious then to find out. Um, is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic? So I'm, I, yes. Yeah, so
0: this, I, I'm not exactly leaving domestic service behind. Um, I, you know, this book, this book has been, a, I think we could definitely call it a, a kind of labour of, I don't know if "love" is quite the right word, but I mean it's been with me for a very long time. You know, I I start it has I started it um, as a as a PhD, uh, like I said, and then and then you know as soon as my PhD had was uh, was uh, finished, I immediately went and worked on something different, and um, and then returned to the the domestic service work after after many years um and so to let it go has been quite strange actually it's sort of it's quite a it, it's it's quite an odd thing to 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 finish um I mean well you never really finish I think that's the that's the nature of the kind of work that we do is you're never really done and so because I'm not done um I there's a, an aspect of what I work talk about in the book that I want to pursue further and that is um violence within the household and so um I write a little bit in the book about uh violence um towards domestic workers and I'd like to delve into that more so I want to I'm currently just in the process of beginning a research project that looks at violence specifically well kind of household violence but with a specific focus on um, violence between domestic workers and their employers um, in different colonial sites and I want to look at Britain I want to look at um, the Caribbean I'd like to also look at India and I'd like to look at Australia as a colony of white settlement, just to see how this kind of household violence was um, differently um, sort of conceptualized, how it was responded to by wider society, how it was responded to by the state and um, what the kind of uh, discourses were that were shaping it because we have quite, you know, we, we, we've explored, or we, there are scholars who have explored the sort of spectacular violence of empire. Um, and there are scholars who've explored the everyday violence of empire. And, um, there are some scholars who have also looked at, you know, domestic violence, although it is, you know, an under-researched field. Um, but I think that looking at domestic violence involving domestic workers and their employers really skews our understanding, or has the potential to really skew our understanding of what domestic violence is and how it's perpetrated and how the power dynamics of it work and, and how it operates um, or is within a, a, a broad, within kind of broader structural um, inequalities as well. So that's what I'm really interested in exploring next. And uh, so I'm just in the process of of trying to find kind of appropriate case studies Mm. um, in order to uh, in order to to research this and hopefully produce a book at the end
1: of it. Well, hopefully you do, because then we can have you back and you can tell us about it then. But uh, in the meantime, while you're actually doing the whole research side, of course, listeners can read the book we've currently been discussing titled In the Service of Empire, Domestic Service and Mastery in Metropole and Colony, published by Bloomsbury. Faye, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: Thank you, Miranda. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for such interesting questions. Thank you.